the Designer Talks podcast. Hello and welcome to Designer Talks podcast by the Charter Society of Designers. I'm your host, Lefteris Heritakis, and our guest today is David Worthington. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Fantastic to have you here. My pleasure. <laughs> so tell us about you. Well, I, uh, I'm a designer, a graphic designer by training, and I've spent all of my life or career pretty much being a designer and thoroughly enjoying it. Um, I'm British. I have four uh, very grown-up children now, live just outside London, I've always lived in London up until very recently, and um, three grandchildren and ask away. Fantastic, fantastic. So when did you realize you wanted to become a designer? Um well, I, was, I always enjoyed art at school. You know, I like drawing, I like, I like painting, and I sort of think I quite like problem solving. But I think when it really, when it really dawned on me that there was something called a designer, was um, one of our art teachers was a graphic designer. And as he began to sort of explain to me what that was all about, I began to think, actually, this is, this is interesting. I like the sound of this. And I sort of set out to try and find a, a bit more about it. And... In our, we had a we had a careers master at school, and we had a careers room from memory with lots of books about being a doctor and being a vet and all these sort of things. And there was one small paragraph on being a graphic designer, which suggested that uh, very very few people could be graphic designers, and the people that were graphic designers would be extraordinarily rich, but most of you would fail. <laughs> <laughs> wow, as <laughs> absurd as that sounds, that's pretty much what it was telling us. So yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And so what happened? So you, you, read, you read the paragraph, you, <clears throat> you met with your teacher, and uh, yeah. what about your education? Um, yeah, I suppose you've got to track back a little bit further. I went to school at the time where schools did Latin, and um, you, you know the, the idea was you did Latin, and if you couldn't do Latin, you would do art. You know, so that immediately tells you the status of art within this particular school. And my father, um, we'll come back on him a bit, but um, my father was an architect, had to go into school and say that uh, David would like to do art because he wants to become an architect. And they were terribly worried because I wouldn't be able to read medicine at Oxford if I didn't have Latin. Uh, <laughs> chances of me going to Oxford were very slim. Um, it was just absurd. It's just madness. So, you know, art was there. It was sort of hard, hardwired into who I was. And I sort of associated art with freedom. Um, my other A-level subjects were physics and maths, which I didn't associate with freedom at all. Um, but being doing art, it meant you could sort of roam around the school with a drawing pad and sketch things. So on a nice afternoon, you could just go and sit outside and then they couldn't do anything about it. So, um, yeah. But I mean, art was, for me, it was an escape. It was, it was enjoyment. It was, you know, a great challenge. And then I discovered... Um, I don't really quite know how this was, but I did, I designed a, a box for a pair of shoes. And I don't have the box anymore, but I have a photograph of it, funnily enough, somewhere. I mean, heaven knows where. Um, and I think I discovered graphic design. And that was sort of contemporaneously with, the, with this teacher arriving at school and talking about um, being a graphic designer. Mike Collinson was his name. Uh, or is his name? I don't know. I've, I don't know if he's um, still around. Um, but it was fantastic. It was just a kind of refreshing thing. 
And, and then, of course, I had to go to college. And my father, who never wanted me to become an architect, was very worried about being a graphic designer. He didn't see, didn't see there was any future in this at all. Really. So what he wanted me to do was become an architect. And once I trained to be an architect, then I could be a graphic designer, you know, because I'd have something to fall back on. It, you know, came from an era where um, careers were very important, you know, the post-war generation. So, and um, so I applied for architecture and got places to sit uh, to do architecture at Newcastle University. Um, very good offer from them. And I also sort of went and saw Central School and Leicester Poly, which is where I ended up. And I remember we went for sort of um, a leaving interview with the headmaster. He said, well, I'm terribly pleased to hear you're going to do architecture, David. And um, I said, well, actually, I think, I'd, I think I'm preferring to, to become a graphic designer. I think that's what I'm going to do instead. He said, well, that's marvellous. I think you make a wonderful architect. And at that <laughs> point, I absolutely knew that, that was the rest of my life, you know. And so it's been. So Fantastic. So tell us a bit about your the, the education sort of... Uh, after after sort of college during college um, yeah well um i was probably one of the first generation to do what was then the new degree course it had been a diploma in art and design and probably two years before me was maybe the first year uh where this dip ad as it was called turned into a, a ba honors so it's a three-year course um it was brilliant um <laughs> Best time of my life, possibly. No, there's been lots of those, but it's definitely one of them. Uh, we all still know each other and see each other, I don't know, once a year. Or do, during lockdown, we were doing quite a lot of Zoom calls together. Um, and it was just amazing, leaving home and going going, going to university. And um, the idea that you could become a designer without doing that is, well, it's possible. Of course it's possible, but it's just nothing like as much fun. You know, uh, and the ability to sort of experiment and learning about things. Um, and in some sense, there's not huge, huge amounts to learn. You know, typography is a relatively simple subject, but the practice of it and the doing of it and the understanding of what design is and how it works for people. And I remember at college, I had a bit of a hiatus because I sort of worked out um, that really the only, the only, application of a graphic designer doing something that, that would could be considered to be really valuable were the instructions on a fire extinguisher. We have a fire. How does it work? Get it. Fire out. There may be other similar examples. The point being that actually nearly everything else a graphic designer was doing was in some respects um, furthering the commercial uh, advantage of, of, of the client, of the buyer. You know, travel by train, not by car, whatever it is. And I sort of, I, I got quite worried about this because I, I felt it should be something a bit more, um, I suppose, ethereal or cultural or valuable, not just about this, this commercial thing about money. So I went to see the head of course and said, I, I think I need to leave. You know, this isn't working for me. And he said, he said, well, why? You know, and I explained why. And he said, yeah. He said, okay, that's fine. He said, but do you enjoy doing it? I said, oh, yeah, I enjoy doing it. He said, well, fucking well, get on with it because most people are accountants and they hate their lives. <laughs> and again, you know, you get these things that happen to you where, sorry, I shouldn't have sworn that, where, you know, you have a sort of point and, and it was the point with the shoebox. It was the point with the headmaster saying, you're not listening to me. It was the point with this man saying, you know, get on with it and get over it and, and, and move forward. So I think there's a, Funny thing in education where 
And, and I think it's underestimated this, where young people are finding their feet. And I don't think that's easy. Um, I was a governor at Ravensbourne University in London. And, um, you know, we didn't have much contact with the students, but we had a bit. And you could see this, that actually, for us, it all seemed pretty obvious. When you were there, you go to college and that's it. And you're going to be whatever you're going to be. You know, be an architect, fashion designer, whatever it was. Um, but I think not underestimating the confusion in a young person's mind, as it was in mine, you know, this, there was this thing, I really wanted to do it, but yet there were still these times when I would look at it and think, is this the right thing to do? And am I going to be any good at it? Will it work? Will I be one of those few people that get rich? You know, <laughs> and all those things. And um, but yeah, it's great. College was fab. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> so you, were you actually able to change anything for, for after the meeting? No, I think well, what happened then was, um, I, first of all, I sort of settled down and said, actually, I, I do enjoy this, just enjoy it. You know, don't, don't, don't be anxious about it. It was one thing. The other was almost a matter of a few months later, one of the college tutors came up to me and said, we've just got an opportunity to do a work experience at um, Conran Associates, as it was called then, so to be Conran Design Group. And um, could you go? And I said, yes, when? He said, tomorrow. Um, so I said, gosh, yes, I, I will. And drove to London and did two weeks at Conrad Design Group. And that was, that was again, that was another seminal piece because arriving at that business in Covent Garden, as it was at the time, and... Um, just seeing how it worked and just watching watching this stuff going on. You know, they were working for Levi's and working for Ryman's. Um, and, you know, they were designing the shops, they were designing products, they were, they were, they were doing the, the packaging and the identities and, the, you know, the, what we now call branding, the whole kind of life of this. And, and then also the Conran businesses, the shop and so on. And these amazing people. And, you know, I mean, I came from Yorkshire. I was a fairly, you know, I don't know, ordinary kind of kid, you know. And I arrived in London where, you know, you go you go into the toilet and there's a soap you've never seen before in French packaging, you know, so sophisticated. You know, it's me trying to kind of, kind of keep up with this, as it were. But they were lovely. Um, they were just, you know, fantastic people. And, you know, the other, I bumped into one of them the other day, a guy called Robert Budwig. He was now a garden designer. He was a graphic designer. And um, and I did this project when I was there, the identity for the Nature Conservancy Council. And it's just one of those kind of completely lucky things. And Robert really helped me do it. And it was it was a good job. And it got into um, got into one of these annuals that we hung. Um, and I think, again, that, that and with what my head of course, um, a guy called uh, Yasha Karo, is you know quite quite well thought of now as a poster designer. Those two things just said to me that's it, and um, I've, I've never looked back. Really, it's just been designed ever since. Fantastic. So yeah. what 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 happened? So 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 you continued. You graduated, and then, yeah, graduated um, with a two one. Uh, my they they said I'd have got a first, but my thesis wasn't. Um, <laughs> didn't put enough energy into it um so yeah graduated and well, hired a van 
put a wardrobe on the roof, put the wardrobe on the roof of the van, put the clothes in the wardrobe, put a piece of rope around it, fill the rest of the van with the bits of furniture that we had. I was, I was with someone then. Um, and we set off for London and, you know, got a flat, moved into the flat, drove the van back up to Leicester and said, right, now we need a job. So it was just almost making it up. And, and I didn't have a job, so I said, well, I'll, I'll work for myself. I'll be, you know, and I had one or two clients that, um, that I'd sort of picked up. And I'd always been quite good talking to clients about, you know, what the, what they need. And, and actually, in many respects, I'm a better uh, account-facing person than I am a pure graphic designer. And... Um, so I set up as a freelance, and then there was a job advertised at um, Stuart McCall Design Associates, and I applied for it and got the job. So suddenly I actually had a, a real job rather than pretending I had a job, which was great because I was earning money. And, um, and my girlfriend at the time was uh, a PA, so, you know, life settled down. And we ended up getting another flat very fairly quickly for one or two reasons. Um, and that was it. Suddenly I was in London and living, you know, a sort of London life, which... Actually, when you first arrive, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult because it's a city of enormous wealth and privilege. Uh, and, and, you know, it's being thrust at you all the time. And, and you know, slightly kind of, you know, well, I think unsure of it all. I mean, London takes a lot of getting used to. Um, and it's, it's, you know, once you do, it's fantastic. It's the best place on earth, you know. I'd only li- I ever thought I'd only ever lived there or New York. There was nowhere else I'd seen that, that captivated me enough. But um, so, yeah, started work, stayed there about a year and a half. And then I got a phone call from some of the people who were at Conrad Design Group because I'd gone back there in the holidays and, uh, when I was at college and done freelance work for them. They were setting up a breakaway group called Benchmark. Um, would I come and work for them, which I did, um, which was great. And I was there for about a year and a half. It was funded by Airfix Industries, which owned a big plastics business and the, um, the model kit company you know those plastic toys you stuck together when you were a small boy uh which ended up going bankrupt so suddenly i kind of you know experienced going through this kind of receivership as it's called in the uk and um <laughs> so they started up again and i went to work for them and i said well i'll come work for three months but then i am going to work for myself so probably about three years after i left college i set up my own thing um and I've really worked for myself ever since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah. brilliant. So, how how do, what is what is different now, and and how do you see the future of design? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I think well. I mean, the obvious difference is digital, um, because that has shifted the um, not just the kind of way things happen and the way things are produced, but it shift it's shifted the way we live. Um, uh, and, you know, I've sort of become aware, for example, I, I, uh, I chair a museum and uh, chair of trustees at a museum. And we're thinking, well, we have visitors that come and see the museum, but we could have visitors that don't ever come and see the museum and don't live in this country and don't know who we are, but they subscribe to us. Um, so it's almost like creating real estate in that sense that, you know, you can have people that you've never met who, who are actually part of what you're doing. So I, th- I think digital is... is shifting not just the way we do things but actually some stuff which is pretty fundamental um well the problem with it is it's data driven um and in sense it's all about data you, you know they can record the precise numbers of people who go to a website and, and exactly to a millisecond how long they're there for 
Um, and designers never have that um, clinical uh, data-driven aspect. I mean, bits of it do. You know, if you're an aeronautical designer, you would completely disagree with what I've just said because without that, planes fall out of the sky. But design in, in, a, in a more rounded way has an element of, of um, intuition, uh, an element of sort of insight, um, thoughtfulness, you know, it's reflective. Um, and there are to some degree sort of happy accidents that happen. And, you know, you just know this when you do something, you draw a letter and you look at it, you think, well, that's rather good. You didn't intend it to be what it, what it is. It just happened. And I think that the, there's a sort of argument between data and design, as, as I understood it. And, and I think at the moment there's, there's, a, there's a bumping and a rubbing of this there. And, you know, we see it in the, the use of the word branding, which sort of becomes ever, ever bigger, you know, and, you know, what happened to corporate identity, you know, which, which aptly described what you were doing. You were creating an identity for a corporation of one description or another. And now it's branding and it includes everything. Uh, and because it includes everything and it all goes into one bucket, then a lot of people lay claim to it. So I think, I, I think there is an evolving piece at the moment between design and other sort of influences, which is playing out as we speak. And I think it's got some way to go. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think that, you know, that's a very positive thing. And I, I see design becoming ever more important. And I kind of say that because in the 80s, I had a client, um, and bear in mind in the 80s, everything was sort of going up. You know, we were going through the roof. The world was never going to be the same again. You know, post the Big Bang, we were earning a fortune. And, uh, I personally wasn't, but, you know, we were. And I had this client who said, David, I, um, to be honest, I don't care what you do. I was showing him something. You know, so I, to be honest, I don't care what you do. Just make it look like the designers have been there. And, you know, because design had become a sort of fashion thing where he had to show someone this brochure or whatever it was. Hey, look, you know, I'm a designer working with this. And I'm, so I'm clever and so on. And, you know, design has, has progressed so much from that. It's now firmly embedded in what we do, the way we approach things, the way we think about things. And so I think design has a great future. But I, I think there are some of these kind of localized little frictions are going on. And it's also unfolding in different ways as well. You know, things like service design, for example, is re a relatively recent concept. Mm. When I was, a, you know, was doing training, there were pretty much four or five design types, graphics, interiors, fashion, product. Is that it? I think it might have been, you know. Um, yes, I think it might, I think it might have been. Now, oof, you know. Lots of different designs. But is it is it like different titles that are referring to the same different packaging that refers to the same content, really? <laughs> no, um, I, I, I know this because I um, was MD at Conrad Design Group for ten years, and um, you, you know what we were doing was if we were talking to a retailer, for example, we were talking about the brand, um, we were talking about the interiors, we were talking about point of sale, the communications. No, absolutely. I mean, the different names that we have now, I was referring to yeah. the different names we have now. Yes. Would you say that there oh, are just, yes, yes, Would you say um, that there are different, the different well, names? They, no, they, 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 are, they are different because um, the brand, is, the graphic designer and the interior designer technically are different. Of course. No, no, of course. I'm, 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 I was talking about the yes. other names, the sort of the... The new ones. Yes. Well, they are, they are, they are equally different. So if you're a service designer, actually... You are dealing with the way 
people go through the process of being served. They go through the experience. And say so you're dealing with sound, for example. Of course. Or you're dealing with some, what someone says. So you're scripting things. Now, graphic designers don't really script stuff in the interior design. So I think I think they are different things. And I think as we discover, actually, you've got something called service design that means that you can improve your service yes. and be more popular. Yes, it's a real subject. It's of course, no, no, oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's just I was I was referring to many other things. Don't, don't worry. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So, what would you do differently if you were to start again? <laughs> I wouldn't spend as much money on fast cars. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've stopped that now. But, um, but my, my impending pension has suffered from that. That's for sure. So, uh, you know. So my advice to any young designers: it actually treat your pension seriously because if you do it, you do it early enough, it does make a, it does it can make a, a good difference when you're when you're older. I learned to my cost. What would I do differently though? Um, I'm not sure. I'd do very much differently, if anything. Um, I, I don't look back on it and think that there were times when I'd like like it to have been different, or I would have. You know, I mean, the, 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 you know, obviously there's certain things that didn't go as well. You think, yes, next time I do that, I'll press a different button or something. Um, but yeah, I, no, I don't, I don't feel at all that I would, you know, do something significantly different at all. No. Mm. What has been your most rewarding experience? Gosh. Um, well. From a sort of work point of view, um, you know, there, there, are, there are projects that stand out and they're not necessarily the big ones. You know, they're things where you make a difference. Um, and I think quite often you can make a big difference with something that isn't quite as glamorous or starts from a point that isn't as well developed as another client. Um, but the difference that you can make is, is is significant, even if the end result isn't you know necessarily looked at and thought to be particularly good. Um, so we did a lot of work for First Choice, for example, which is a tour operations business, part of TUI. Um, and you know you wouldn't say that the work we did was amazing. I mean, you know, the designers wouldn't look at it and say, "Gosh, what a wonderful holiday brochure," because it just doesn't. You know, there's a little model aeroplane there of one of the liveries thing. You, know, you see it there. Um, so it's not amazing work, um, and, and no one's pretending it is, but the difference from where it was when we arrived to what we did was significant. And so I think things like that, that stands out. Working for Diesel stood out. That was extraordinary for Renzo Rosso that owns it and, and all the amazing guys that um, work in that. It's quite extraordinary business um, and fantastic. But, and, and that was just brilliant fun. I think the other thing is that the, you know, if I think back, the number of people that have worked um, for me or with me or in businesses that I've, I've run has been, well, it's in the hundreds. Um, and I feel quite proud of that. And, um, and I know that people would, some of the designers have said to me, you know, when, when I, you know, I came there and I, you know, and I, I had to do this and, you know, we were in a meeting and then we sort of finished the meeting and we said, right, off you go, go and do it. And I thought, gosh, how am I going to do this? You know, so then we just chucked people in the deep end, and um, we didn't. We, know, we looked after them, 
but we always gave people the opportunity to do things. You know, we, we weren't saying, oh, one day you will be able to do it like this, just watch me. It was completely the opposite. It was like, right, we're going to do this, <laughs> and you better join in and, and pull your weight. And I feel quite proud of that, actually, that um, a lot of the things we did, we just got on with. Um, so I think when I think back, we were responsible for a huge number of things. And were we educated, trained to do that? Not really. We were kind of making it up in many ways. Um, but I think we did um, we did very well. Yeah. Fantastic. What what else are you passionate about other than design? Boats. 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 <laughs> yeah, we got a boat there, you got a boat there, you got drawing a boat there, there's a boat badge, there's all sorts of boat stuff. There's always boat stuff. Yeah. And it's become um, a kind of uh, what they call a side hustle. Mm. Um, I, I've always had boats and I ended up sort of uh, finding a sort of buying and selling bits of boats. You know, I like classic boats, I like old boats. So, you know, buying and selling stuff. And that's become a, a sort of sideline business. And in many respects, that, that consumes as much time now as anything else that I do. Um, so actually buying and selling boats and bits of boats and things to do and so on. So could that have become another career or would you have chosen another career uh, if you hadn't uh, been a designer? Yeah, could have done. My is... Go, go back to my father for a minute. He was an architect. Um, and uh, in the end, gave up being an architect uh, for health reasons, basically. And he wanted to then buy a boatyard. He never did. And uh, I think there's probably something hardwired in my head about you know, one day having a boatyard. I, I, I never will. I mean, they're just phenomenally expensive things, which is why he never got one. Um, the one he found that was making enough money to make it viable was too expensive. And the others were just, you know, um, so that never happened, which is a great shame because I'd have grown up in a boatyard and actually probably would now be running the boatyard. So um, I think life would have, would, would, would have been very different. Mm. But uh, yeah. Mm. So yes, it could be. How, how yeah. does design affect your everyday life? Uh, well, it, it's, you don't... You, you know, you can't create designers, they just exist. You know, it's part of you. So it, it, it's everything. There isn't anything that I do or look at or think about that doesn't include design. We, you know, we moved out of London a few years ago, bought a project house basically. So the last three years we've been sorting that out and, and the um, other bits that go with it. So that's been my biggest hire has been myself working on, on this house. But everything I've looked at on it, of course, is design or design related mm. and um so yes it's it's everything and actually you know you see things and you think gosh they haven't done that very well <laughs> why, why did they design it like this it doesn't work look at it watch you know and, I, and i'm not talking about you know another designer's efforts i'm talking about something abort you know that when you sort of take it apart you think well actually it's just stupid you know? yeah. um and I, I i think the other thing is design the other place that design is be beginning to make inroads, but I'm not quite sure in quite which ways, is, is, is the whole sort of environmental sustainability question. Mm -hmm. And um, currently that's more of a technical place. But if I look at the way we recycle here, for example, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, it, you, it's a very crude object. You've got a big blue bin and then you've got a small green bin and you put this in that and that in that. And this lot you go and put anywhere. So you've got to put that in the black bin called rubbish. And that whole kind of system is random, 
difficult to manage. The, the equipment you need to, to take this thing to the to the driveway to, to take it away is just hopeless. You know, it's just a very blunt instrument. And and so I think design is popping up all over the place all the time. Absolutely. Mm. What has been your biggest mistake? <laughs> um, well, I, 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 there were two jobs which uh, of of which I had to, um, uh, we, we had to bring our professional indemnity policy in to, to cover. So those were clearly mistakes. Um, one was where, and uh, I think we sort of inadvertently didn't realize, and this sounds really ridiculous, didn't realize that you a drawing in someone's identity was actually copying. And <laughs> this is not to blame the designer that came up with the idea, but his, um, he, his view was, this is what they call found imagery. And so we found it so we could use it. Well, you can't use it because it belongs to the estate of this very famous architect. <laughs> And it was a clear error, fortunately, and the PI insurance stepped in. The other place the PI insurance stepped in was on Formula One's um, reception area in their old previous headquarters, not the current uh, Foster building, but the previous one. Uh, and that was a mistake. And um, yeah, I mean, you make mistakes. It's kind of, you know, it's a bit like accidents, isn't it? I mean, the meaning of the word is accident. If it wasn't intentional, it's an accident, it's a mistake. But um, were there things that I regret? Slightly different way of looking at it. Um, no, I don't. Yes, I mean, yes, of course. But I mean, in, I've been very lucky. You know, so no, I don't think there have been too many mistakes. Should designers be expected to solve everything? <laughs> I've, um, over the last sort of 15 years, I've sat on various committees and boards, you know, some non-exec related stuff, generally um, generally unpaid uh, roles, you know, for, for charities and things. And um, I can't think of who, I do remember who it was. Uh, some chap said to me one day, he said, I do like, I do like it when we have a discussion about something. I do like what you say, because you don't think like the rest of us. You come at it from a different point of view, or you say something that we weren't thinking about, or whatever it is. So I think, I think designers do approach things differently. Now, it doesn't mean that that's always the right thing, because sometimes actually stuff in life needs to just happen without anyone kind of meddling or fiddling or being overly clever or rethinking it. But I do think designers make a, can make a contribution to almost every subject because they come at it slightly differently to the way other people do. And therefore, I think, yes, design is there and it can be there in, 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 in everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and just look at nature. I mean, look at the Fibonacci scale and ask yourself the question, who the hell designed that? I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So there is sort of, you know, is there a god of design? Um, no, but, you know, somehow without design, it just wouldn't be working at all. Um, so, yeah, design's, a, design's pretty much there. But, uh, Yeah. What what principles uh, do you adhere to as a designer? That's a good question. 
I mean, there are designers that would never work on uh, tobacco, for example, you know, sort of say, no, this is, you know, that's, that's against my principle. I don't work on that kind of stuff. Um, I don't work for oil companies, for example. Um, I've never worked for a tobacco business because I've never been asked. Um, if I was, would I have done it? Probably. I mean, I spent most of my life, life smoking. I don't smoke at all now. Um, nor have done for several years. But, um, but I work for an oil company, Shell. Um, you know, so, so I think there's, I think there are those kind of principles. I, th I think there are others. I mean, you know, in, in particularly pitching, for example, people ask you to pitch um, for work, and it's such a difficult question, you know. So, what's, you know, at what point do you say no? I'm principled about this, and I'm not going to do any free pitching. But actually, you know, doing a proposal for something is essentially a free pitch. You know, you are giving yeah. them your intellectual yeah. property, whether you draw it or write it or say it or or, 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 or whatever. Um, so it's a moot point at which point the free pitch comes in. But it's an insidious, uh, what's the word, technique or, you know, it doesn't get anyone anywhere. I mean. I was talking to someone the other day and they said, oh, yes, well, we do one or two. I said, one of two? <laughs> they'll look at 20 of you and they'll beauty parade 12 of you. They'll bring it down to eight and then that'll come to four and then it'll come to two. And, you know, you just do the mathematics down that little chart. And one apocryphal year at Conrad Design Group, we spent £1.1 million on our new business effort. And that included, you know, the pitches, the aeroplane flights, all the expenses, the cost of the new business department, and the amount of new business that we won for that year was 1.1 million. Now, if you do 1.1 million that you've paid for, it's just ridiculous because if you're working at, say, a 20% margin, we're probably about around there, which is pretty good, uh, it takes you five years to get your 1.1 million back. And in five years' time, you've spent another 5.5 million, you know. So new business and pitching is just... Uh, is the most exciting thing in the world, you know, but it's um, when you win it as well. Uh, and even when you lose it, sometimes it can be very exciting, but it's it's a tough call. So. And also usually the clients take bits and bobs from, from each pitch and, and try to put it together. And then they, they, they think they can also combine. And, and that, that's where really it becomes complicated also, because yes. they, they don't select you for, for, yes. for, for no. who you are and what you do. No, they just see bits and bobs absolutely. in front of them. Absolutely. And yeah, it becomes so a very complicated process. I was also, I was also um, uh, referring to also your, your design, as a designer, the, mm. the way you design mm. your, your, your values as a designer, sort of what, how you apply these things to your design. Yeah, I think the, 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 the sort of underlying, well, I suppose there are two things really. Um, one is the sort of underlying relationship you have with the, the, the person who's giving you the brief for this, you know, the, uh, not always, but, but mostly a client. And the way in which you listen to what they, what they want and what they need, what they think they need, and then your sort of, your observation is adding to that, yeah, colour to that, um, that, that, that particular conversation. So I think for me, the, the fundamental principle is, is who is asking me to do this and what is it that they need from that? It isn't necessarily what they're asking for, but you know, what I might see, or I might see something about something, okay, well, we'll do this now and then we'll, we'll move on and do that sometime in the future. So I think, you, you know, the underlying, um, I don't think the right word for this, um, 
the, the sort of exchange of relationship between the client and the designer. And for me, if you get that right, everything else works. You just, you know, so I think that that's the abiding principle is there. Um, and that has to be to a great degree compromise, you know, because they're not necessarily going to do what, what it is I want, or they can't afford it, or they don't think it's right yet, or they haven't sort of got to that point, or actually I'm wrong. And, and what, what they see is, is correct, and I'm trying to take it somewhere else. So I think, I think for me, that is the founding principle sits there. I think the other is that, um, you, you know, you try and pair things back so that, you know, what you're looking at is, is what you need to look at uh, and, and, and the extraneous stuff that sits around it. So I think simplicity is, is, is another point. And then the third one is actually a sort of, um, it's a kind of nautical um, expression. It looks right, is right. And if you look at a boat, you know, you take the shape of the boat, and if you can see the inside and the outside at the same time, you know, when you're looking down through the cabin, you can see the ribs and the frames and everything. And, it, and when it looks right, it is right, and it works well. And I think that's, that's as kind of an abiding aesthetic, um, which doesn't seem to have much place in the modern world, you know, because in the modern world, it's sort of, oh, it's a brand thing, or, it's all, or that's all sort of, you know, but actually, it's it's the root and branch of the of, of of the industry where someone walks into a room and just gets it. You know, someone walks up to a hotel desk and just lives it. You know, or you walk into an exhibition uh, gallery and it just you know it sort of sort of comes over. Yeah. So the, the looks right is right principle for me is is it has to have that. If it doesn't have that, it's not working. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Who has been your biggest influence in life? Well, that's a good, uh, good question. I've, I've, from a kind of um, career point of view, it has to be Terence Conlon. And that's not necessarily because he was an amazing designer. In many respects, he was an organizer, I think, rather than a designer, but clearly he was a designer. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I grew up in the, um, I, went, I went to college in the mid 70s, 75, 78. So I was, and, and I came from Harrogate in Yorkshire, a very well, um, well-heeled, uh, very lovely town, uh, sort of Dorchester town, as they call them. It had a habitat in Harrogate, so I'd sort of seen habitat, this, this, uh, this um, UK retailer of, of um, basically a better way to live, mm. which is what Terence was um, expounding, the virtues of, you know, a better life, better quality of life. And it's... It's very sort of um, champagne socialist in its kind of principles, but this was this was happening. This was coming in, you know, and, and it was coming off the back of, of the Festival of Britain and the post-war sort of austerity, um, and then off the back of the sort of swinging sixties where stuff was starting to move, and it was beginning to be spread out to the to the to every every everyone. You know, it's becoming democratically available. So I think you have. You have that, you have the color of, of Conrad, which is blue. <laughs> blue is my favorite color. It's sort of somehow that that works. And then, of course, I did my work experience, got to know the people there, then went back to this sort of breakaway group. And then in the mid-90s, we'd had a bit of a hiatus in the business, kind of wondering what to do, got ourselves back on our feet. We'd invested in digital in 1994, when it was called multimedia and where the chap that did it 
formerly all ran it for me, said, oh, the internet will never be anything. Don't worry about that. It's all about multimedia. <laughs> and, um, anyway, um, so we were sitting there and then I got a phone call and someone said, do you want the wrong kind of design group? And I said, interesting, what's the deal? And I, you know, I was running a business with about, um, I don't know, 25 people or so. What's the deal? And they said, well, they'd, they'd buy your business or you could buy theirs. You know? um, and, and so we, we did this kind of amazing deal. And sort of 20 years after I'd um, done my work experience, I, I went back to this same company uh, that was much different. Terence Conrad wasn't there and so on and so forth. But there was a sort of, you know, there was a cyclical kind of meant to be thing about that. So it, it has, that has to be a kind of a, a theme that ran through um, to which I was sort of alongside it. Okay, so, you know, and I met Terence a few times and the first time I met him, I said, you know, look, you must, um, although we run a company with your name on, please understand, we do not pretend we are there and we don't pretend we're you. Um, and then he and I hatched a plan to put his design business and, and the company, the original Conrad Design Group business back together. Uh, it didn't succeed because the people who owned Conrad Design Group, um, French group called Havis, uh, didn't want to do it in the end. It's a great shame because I think that would have been a stunning business in every respect. But, um, and then I suppose the other influence, that I didn't realise it was my father. Um, he was a, an architect. He was a um, post-war architect, part of the brutalist uh, movement. And he worked with a guy called Owen Luna. Uh, Owen is still alive, past president of Riva twice, um, well-respected figure in, in the industry. And together they designed some amazing buildings along with a guy called Rodney Gordon. Um, so the Tricorn Centre down in Portsmouth was uh, was one of theirs. Listed, now, now destroyed, um, demolished rather than destroyed. But my father was the project architect on... Um, uh, building up in Gateshead, which was in the film Get Carter. So the Get Carter car park was one of my dad's buildings. Now, you see, I didn't realise that at the time, of course. So, that you know, that influence didn't exist. But if I think back, the choice of furniture we had in the house was actually, when I reflect on it now, rather good. And we had a Bang and all of some stereo, you know, very designed. And, and I, I sort of didn't realize what was happening. But if I look at, I, I have a photograph of me when I'm about three or four in 1959, uh, and in this very modern room, this, this kind of post festival of Britain room. And so, although I didn't pick up any of those particular things at the time, what was going on, I suspect, is that sense of um, aesthetic, probably. A uh, sense of design, a sense of clarity was actually being kind of, um, what's the word, inculcated whatever it is, mm. in, in, into my head. So, mm, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and the other thing, actually, I have to say is all the people that I've ever worked with, you know, I always made it a principle to, you know, just always get people that are better than you, you know. And that's and I think that's really stuck with me. And I think, you know, I've worked with some fantastic designers and, and great operators, you know, really good finance directors, you know, great new business people. And I'd be very lucky about that. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Which brings us to the next question. What what other skills does a designer need to have? Uh listening. Listening. You gotta listen. Listen and watch. 
because after a while, someone will say to you, um, like, you know, it could be almost any subject at all, um, Volkswagen, for example. And then you say, it's almost like kind of, um, there's the um, quiz show, just a minute, where you've got to speak for a minute without repeating a word on the subject, and here's a subject, there it is. And actually for a designer, after a while, you, someone can say a, co a company name to you and you can almost talk about it without knowing anything about it because you become quite familiar with what might, what most, what is there, what most, what you're most likely going to find. And I found after a while I could walk into a reception area and probably tell you what was going to, you know, what the brief was going to be like, what the coffee's going to be like. You know, you could judge it, you could think, you could, you could read the signs. So I think listening and looking are, are two key things. And, and after a while, you find that you, you can actually interpret what you're seeing in front of you without being necessarily being told. But it's because you've spent you know, all your time absorbing rather than walking in somewhere and going, oh, I want to change this, I want to change that. It's, it's not really a point. So listening, definitely listening and, and looking. There's more <laughs> that I'll do. <laughs> what is the value of research in design? Um, yeah, well, that's been very tested at the moment, isn't it? Um, it's very valuable. But for me, it's the qualitative research that interests me. You know, what, how do people feel about something? And I think, you know, where it's been largely been quantitative, um, we, we are definitely seeing a move towards qual rather than quant and i think there's two reasons for that i think we are beginning to understand that people's feelings and how they how they relate to stuff is is palpable it's important and it's measurable uh, i think at the same time we're going slightly in that direction because there's so much data being produced that the quantitative side is 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 beginning to over define stuff in my view so eye tracking for example on, on you know um, websites you know guess what they tell you that the eye goes to the top left hand corner that's where we should put the logo <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know it's just nonsense you know um so i think there's the data, data is starting to interrupt and therefore we're sort of you know pulling away from that and looking more at the way people feel but, but i think both are important i think where it's slightly slightly destructive is um and this happens in the packaging industry where people pitch for a job and then you know they might get it down to two or three and then they'll pay them a pitch fee to to, to generate a piece of packaging and that those pieces of packaging from two or three different companies will go into research so the customer will choose the pack that has been produced in a pitch now, of course, if you produce stuff in a pitch, it's a relatively, it's not an immersive situation. You're not working with the client in the same way. You're not spending as much time thinking about it because you're not being paid as much money. And so you're rushing to a conclusion that then someone else chooses. And that, you start to think about that and you sort of think, well, that's, that probably isn't doing the client any favours ultimately. Absolutely. Um, so I, th I think research can be disruptive. What's, you know, I've got a business that I'm um, getting to know at the moment called um, Kids Know Best. And I, this is a very interesting company because they focus on an area of, of, of um, consumer, which is not that well understood. Um, you know, people talk a lot about children, they talk a lot about old people, but they don't understand either particularly well. 
they tend to concentrate on the, on, on, on the chunk in the middle. They're doing something slightly different, which is to go down to this bit. And what they're doing is actually understanding how these children think. Yeah. And, and they're sort of producing this, this information um, related to a client, you know, a particular game or product or drink or food or whatever it is, you know, clothing. Um, and then they're using that information and that client to, to inform the design work that's then done. But it's sort of research-led design, which is, I think is actually really rather interesting. And um, the conversations I have with them a little bit about, you know, to what extent does design lead or does research lead? And I don't think it matters, but I think it's quite interesting that you've got a research company that is actually understanding that if it converts research into uh, real things that people can buy, whether it's products or, you know, brands, whatever it is, um, that has quite, quite a significant value. So I, I think we're going to see research change. And I think data that's coming out of the, you know, the digital space is the, um, is the fuel for that happening. So. Brilliant. How do you relate to design awards? Are they important? Yeah, of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to win an award. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> well done, you. Pass on the back. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, that we, you know, around the world, there are all sorts of different awards. I mean, in, in the UK, the particular ones are, or notable ones, really, are DNAD. Um, you know, I've never, I've got a couple of things in the book. In fact, and there's a little certificate there. Um, I've got a couple of things in the book, but I've never done anything good enough to get a pencil. And I would love to, but, you know, I think that ship has sailed, as they say. Um, so DNA is fantastic. And the DBA, um, Design Business Association, the um, commercial awards, you know, the, you know, the success, uh, commercially successful design. Great. And um, I've got a couple of those in my time. When I say me, you know, my, me and my team, yeah. my company, whatever it was. But yeah, no, I think they're good. <laughs> yeah. The dinners are a bit, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, more awards have cropped up, so different kinds of awards. Yes. And so it can just get a bit confusing that yes. we have more yes. of them now and more yes. categories. And then you get the, um, what was the one that I got? Brand Transformation Awards. Which is funny though, these awards tend to go into particular bits. So um, the Transformation Awards tend to be done in the sort of the B2B um, design area, uh, particularly people working on sort of um, corporate communications, corporate um, report accounts and that sort of area. Um, DNAD tends to be more around publishing. Uh, you know, the, the, these, these awards have their roots in, of course. you know, stuff. Of so I, but I, I, think, I think it's, um, it's all good, you know. Fantastic. Yeah. Why, why did you ask the question? No, it's, it's, it's just about uh, really the, the awards that, that have become a lot. Yeah. And, and yeah. it seems that some of them are just scraping the surface. They're not like going in, in deep yes. enough. Because also we have too many of them possibly right now. Yes. Rather than yes. the established ones. So now there yes. are like yes, a lot I of them. I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's the integrity of the DNAD process. Um, arguably, it, it 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 becomes a kind of self fulfilling prophecy. So you know, if if, if you're part of it and you win an award, you end up on a judging committee, and therefore it sort of goes round in that particular space. Mm. 
but the integrity of, of what what's chosen um and actually the the breadth because you know the, the way they develop those awards so rather than just being in the book or a pencil you know you know have different structures and different types of pencils so on and so yeah. forth yeah um and clearly you know as, a, as an economic thing because i could go back and get um whatever thing it is a little disc or you know a rather dull colored pencil probably you know for having the book but it's quite expensive but people do you know so how many of them would you like they're 500 pounds each you know, it's kind of, you know but it's fair enough you know it's fair enough it pays for their education activities yeah. in their case and um you know long may it continue of course how do you maintain your your enthusiasm and inspiration well it goes back to the fact that actually you don't you're in a sense born a designer so it's always there it's an affliction in some respects because you know <laughs> to a degree you're sitting there thinking this looks pretty ugly <laughs> that's, that's not a great place is it you know you want to um you, you want to look out on a world that sort of you know um that looks that looks good basically yeah uh so i think i think it's there all the time um i think design is always about sort of improving things and seeing slightly different things and new things i mean i just know with the house project that we've done you know i'm sort of looking at it now thinking well maybe we could do that again do that slightly differently or something and it's just continuous so i don't think it ever it doesn't ever leave you you know yeah, yeah. So, what is yeah. a single piece of advice that you'd give to anyone starting out as a designer hmm What would I say to them? Well, I, I suppose actually, you know what? Just enjoy it. Just kind of, you know, you're, you're about to do something. I mean, it's just, you know, what a wonderful way to make a living. <laughs> it's not really work. You know, someone's, someone's going to set you a problem or a task to solve it might be once a week, it might be once a day, it might be once a month or once a year, but it's not always going to be the same. You know, if someone's going to say, how do we do this? Or these people would like to do the following. What's the best way? I mean, that's just such an interesting thing to be given. And then to be able to sort of script it and, and work with it and shape it is just wonderful. And someone's paying you to do this. Yeah. You know, so honestly, the advice would be, just enjoy it. You know, you are privileged to do this. Absolutely privileged. Yeah. What a wonderful thing to do for working life. What so, about yeah. the advice for, for the client? Um, well, I always think, uh, and I always thought that the client will work as hard as you. And the really successful jobs I've found is where the clients, you know, firmly engaged in it, in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that, interplay whatever it is 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 there now they may, they may not work as hard as you because you know certainly in, in larger uh companies they're dealing with all sorts of things you know that you're not dealing with and they're having to sort of sell into internally and everything else but i think um, you, you know i think for the client you can't don't disengage from it and i think you know the, the process of selecting the designer whether whether it's by recommendation or by you know choosing or by testing or by pitching or whatever it is is not the answer all you've done is choose the designer you know and if in the pitch they've come up with this thing that you think is is is, is good 
actually they will come up with it pretty quickly and it won't all work. So, you know, one thing I would definitely say for, for clients is don't assume the pitch is the answer, assume the pitch is the beginning of the journey. And that if you've got something that even you think it's brilliant and they think it's brilliant, you should stop and say, right, let's just road test this because we did it quickly and we don't know that it covers all the bases it's going to need to cover. So we need to experiment with this. And I've seen it time and time again where the pitch becomes the answer. And actually when you go into it, and so you go a little bit down the line, you find it doesn't really work in that situation or that environment or it's not quite good enough for that particular shot, whatever it is, you know. So, yeah. Absolutely. And what is the most important thing that you've learned at designing? I don't know, really. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, that the world will always be a better place, I suppose. And that, um, you know, that people, that people are the most important thing, yeah, that, that it has to work for them. Um, and I suppose that design... In a way, the best design is when you can't see it. It just sits there and it does what it's supposed to do. You know, even a beautiful car just sits very comfortably on, on you know, in, in its form um, and, and makes you feel very pleased or happy about things, you know, that it improves the quality of life. Absolutely. Which I guess is back to what Terence Conway was saying, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic <laughs> conversation. <laughs> it was um, interesting for people listening to it. And I'm sorry I swore earlier on, so you might edit that bit out. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so have, yeah. a, have a wonderful day. Yes, I will. And, and you. Yes. Goodbye.